You're listening to the Gates Church Podcast. For more information or to support this ministry, please visit thegate.org. You want to turn with me to Malachi 3. We're going to be starting at verse 13 and going all the way to the end. Malachi 3, verse 13. It says, Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. But you say, How have we spoken against you? You have said it is vain to serve God. What is the profit of keeping his charge or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them. And a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession, and I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between the one who serves God and the one who does not serve him. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts so that it will not leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, um, we thank you for your word. And we thank you that even though at times it's heavy and, and hard for us to grasp, Lord God, that it's the truth. Lord God, so I, I, I pray that as we go through your word this morning, that you would, um, through your Holy Spirit within each one of us, that you would help us to, to, to hear it, that you would humble us, Lord God, um, to be changed by it, to accept it, and, and, to, and, to, and in the end that we would turn to you, Lord God. That above all, that this would result in us turning towards you and knowing you in a greater and deeper way, Lord. I thank you for each and every person here this morning that you brought them here for a purpose, Lord God, and that you would speak to each of their hearts, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So full disclosure before I go any further, I'm not a, I'm not a financial guru, okay? I don't trade in stocks or bonds or anything like that, so don't take anything I'm going to say in a bit as financial advice, okay? Um, because I am going to be using uh, the stock market as my sermon illustration this morning, but I am not a financial guru. So don't be like, well, Pastor Greg said if I invest in this, and then, um, and then you lose all your money, it's not my fault. So had to get that out of the way. But what I do know about stocks in the stock market is that, is that as a, in the market business, there's what they call low-risk and high-risk investments. And I have a, a low-risk chart. Do you have that chart? There we go. Risk-return trade-off. 
There's low-risk, low-return investments, high-risk, high-potential-return investments. So low-risk investments, okay, stay with me. It'll make sense in a bit. Low-risk investments are more likely, this isn't a TED Talk, low-risk investments are more likely to reap some small reward or profit over a long period of time, right? And they're called low-risk because they have minimal chance of loss. So you won't lose any money, probably. So they're pretty safe to invest in. But again, the reward is pretty small. Over a long period of time, it could, it could get pretty big, but it, it takes patience, right? But high-risk stock stocks, which present, they, they present an opportunity to gain huge profits, but they also come with a high chance of loss. Basically, they're risky stock options because, because the, to, I have to read my notes because I don't know what I'm talking about. Basically, they're risky stock options to purchase, right? Because they're not a sure thing and they're often costly, right? But if they do pay off, they pay off big, especially if you invest a lot. But if you're wrong, again, you'll have wasted all your money on nothing. Just You'll just have given your money away, right? And could potentially lose everything if the market crash crashes or if the value of the stock plummets or goes down unexpectedly. So obviously at the very center of this type of decision, when it comes to investing in a high-risk investment, in a high-risk stock, there's going to be the question that we'll all ask ourselves, is it worth it? Is it worth it to invest in this stock? Because let's be honest, we, we have very little problem investing in something if it's worth it to us, right? Or if, or if we think it'll benefit us in some way, especially if it's something that's a sure thing, right? These are what I'll call life's low-risk investments. For example, we'd have no problem investing in a movie ticket because we know it'll, it'll probably, the movie will probably entertain us. So it's worth it, the $10 or $13 or whatever. Um, We'd probably invest in our own education or in our children's education because we know that getting an education is important for getting a job or career in the future, right? And we'd most likely be more than willing to invest in something like a mortgage, which, which you know, that you could afford. Not, not a high mortgage, that's a high-risk investment, but a, a smaller mortgage, you know, if we could afford it be, um, because property values tend to increase and you get to own and live in a home. So that's, that's, a, that's a good investment, a low-risk investment. But on the flip side of that, Investing in something that has the potential to be extremely costly, right? To invest in something where we could lose it all or possibly lose it all. That's a different story, right? Even if the outcome could potentially be to gain even more than we had before, like gambling, for example, if we gamble all our money at the casino. We have the potential to to win big, but we have the potential to lose everything, so again, naturally, to protect our self-interest, we tend to ask ourselves in these situations, is this high-risk investment going to be worth it to me? Will I profit from it, or will I just be throwing my hard-earned money away? And of course, we also ask, you know, if we're willing to invest, if we're willing to risk, how much are we willing to risk? Are we willing to risk just some of what we have, or are we willing to risk all of what we have? But let's hold off a second, because there's another option in the markets as well. And it's this. You can also bet against a stock. This is called shorting a stock. Okay? So when you think the market's going to crash or when you think that particular stock's value is going to go down, then you can bet against that stock. And you can make up money off of other people's loss, make money off of the people that bet for that stock. 
right? Which is kind of sad. By the way, I recently learned this all from a movie. So, <laughs> but I did do a quick Google search to confirm that this is real. So you can short a stock, okay? But anyways, if faith in God was a stock on the market, many of the Israelites being described here, being spoken to here in Malachi, have looked at it as a high-risk stock that was going to fail, but they've decided is going to fail, and they've decided to short that stock. In layman's terms, they've bet against God. Today, we might call them atheists, or in our case, we might call them lukewarm Christians. They've bet against God. Malachi 3, 13 to 15, let's read that again. God says to them, or Malachi says to them, Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. But you say, how have we spoken against you? You have said, it is vain to serve God. What is the profit? What is the profit of our keeping his charge or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. So they decided that God, that following God isn't worth it to them. They're saying, what profit is there in worshiping God or repenting before him? So they're selling off their God stock, right? And they're, and they're investing in different and seemingly safer ones that the world offers. Stock that offers a more immediate return or immediate payout. But certainly, we know less satisfying and more fleeting than what God has to offer. Because yes, to follow God is a high-risk investment in that sense, where it costs us everything. It costs everything they are and everything they have. And so they've decided that they're not willing to take that risk because they're not getting anything out of it right now. So they're, con- so they're convinced, or they're not convinced, that they're going to get anything out of it later. In fact, it seems like they've decided that following God is empty, right? It's, it's worthless, it's hopeless, it's all in vain, they say. Following God is in vain. They've come to the conclusion that to follow God will only result in a wasted life. What's the point, they're saying? And, and they came to this conclusion because they've seen that the arrogant and evildoers of the day, that they call them, which we would just call non-believers or whatever, right? they've tested God. They're seeing that they, these people have tested God, and it seems like they've come away in the, clear, in the clear, right? They're getting away with testing God. And we talked about this point last week, so I'm not going to get too much into it again. But, but just like how it caused them to question God's sense of justice, they're saying, well, God must not be just because these evildoers are getting away with all this stuff. Once again, this is the reason for betting against God, because it seems to be currently working out quite well for those who have already have. And then we think, though, like, all this, they're like, oh, we see these people, they're betting against you, then we should probably bet against you too, right? But all this, even though God's repeatedly done amazing things for them over and over in their past, in their, in their history, with their ancestors, but it doesn't matter because their evidence is based on their current circumstance, their lack of evidence of God's presence in their life at the time, and their cultural leanings and influences and worldviews. We're, we're slaves to our culture. I was talking about the elders uh, yesterday. We're slaves to our culture. We interpret everything based on, on our culture. Right? In our culture right now, we're thinking we can't, well, we can't 
understand a God because we have a culture of tolerance and we can't understand a God that would, that would condemn evil. But then another culture would be like, I can't follow a God that doesn't condemn evil. But we're slaves to our culture. And so are the Israelites here. And the prophet Malachi, speaking as God's messenger, has shown us throughout his prophetic word how their lack of investment in God has affected their attitudes. And since this is the conclusion of Malachi, we're going to go, we're going to go through Malachi again and, and, and look at, at what their attitude and worship is like to God now that they've, they've decided they're not going to invest much or not invest anything. So let's review Malachi the people that Malachi is talking to, they've become apathetic toward God's love and faithfulness to them. They're lazy in their worship, in giving their sacrifices and social justice and in keeping the law of Moses inside and outside the temple. They've quit giving tithes and offerings, and when they do, it's not in thanksgiving. They've become unfaithful in their relationships and marriages with one another because they no longer seek or care to honor and display God's covenant within them. And finally, some have just simply turned from God altogether, betting on their, their own personal desires and their stuff, their idols, and on themselves over following God. So that's what it looks like to bet against God. But before... We're going to talk about the result of that in a bit. But before we become too critical of them, let's pull out the proverbial mirror, not a real mirror. Um, I don't like props. Let's pull out the proverbial, as my community group knows. Um, let's pull out the proverbial mirror then and, and remember that we live in a culture that's basically doing the same thing as these Israelites were doing. And on that note, it never ceases to amaze me how the world and the people that Malachi is speaking to are so similar to us even today. This is like 2,500 years ago. So 2,500 years later, not much has changed in our human nature and in our tendency to bet against God and lean on ourselves and our own understanding, right? Because we think we're so much smarter than God. We think, oh, God must be hiding someone from, something from us so we eat the forbidden fruit, right? We have a tendency to turn to turn ourselves over to, towards our limited and ever-changing knowledge of the universe and man-made philosophies like they're a sure thing, and we bet against God. We turn to our friends and co-workers who look like they're having way more fun than us, getting wasted, sleeping around, and getting rich, and so we turn against God, and we bet against God. We turn to our personal desires and our pride and our feelings and our cultural worldviews or lifestyles that don't line up with God's character or his word because we think we know better than the creator of the universe. And, and we're like, well, I can't accept a God who doesn't agree with me. And so we bet against God. We turn to our money and our stuff that we hold so dear and the goodies that we want to consume and hoard instead of serving the poor or giving our tithes and offerings with thanksgiving. And then we bet against God. Basically, when we put our trust or worship in anything besides God, we're shorting God. And we all do it, right? We all do it. Maybe we skip church to watch the game or, or we push aside our, our, our personal daily Bible study and prayer times just so we can binge watch shows on Netflix or, or watch Snapchat stories for an hour instead. Right? We bet against God. We're saying, I'm going to invest in something else so I can get an immediate return instead of betting again, instead of trusting in and putting our faith in God. 
course, we're more than willing to make low-risk investments for God that don't really cost us much, right? Even the Israelites Malachi is speaking to, they're making low-risk. They're still showing up in the temple sometimes. They're still giving, like, a semblance of a sacrifice to God. And we do that too, right? We'll show up at church once in a while. Maybe even give to a special offering so we know where the money's going. Or we'll pray for God to help us get something on those really hard days. We'll finally get on our knees and pray for 30 seconds. But to invest fully, to invest everything we are, to, to sing, take the world and give me Jesus and actually, truly mean it, that's the question, isn't it? Luke fourteen twenty five to 33. It says, Now great crowds accompanied Jesus. And he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Jesus doesn't mince his words here. He's straight up blunt when he says following him is costly. And I guess that's how we know he's not lying. Unlike the serpent or or Satan who promises us the world without letting us know the cost, right? With Adam and Eve, he's like, surely, surely you won't die. God's just hiding, hiding all this awesome stuff from you and all this knowledge from you. Surely you won't die. That's what Satan does. But Jesus is straight up. He's telling the truth. He's not trying to trick us and tell us it's all rainbows and earthly prosperity. No, he's telling us that to follow him is costly, and he's telling us to count the cost. He's telling us that to follow him is to give our lives, is to give everything, to hate everything else even. And remember, in this context, hate doesn't mean we have to disobey our commandment to love our neighbor as ourselves. No, we're supposed to love everybody, right? In the love of Christ. But rather, just like in Malachi chapter 1, this is covenant language that he's using here. And therefore, to hate others and love him in this context means to love him and follow him in a way that we wouldn't for anyone else, right? To be his and his alone, set apart for him, holy as he is holy. That's what he's talking about here. To give our lives solely and completely to Jesus. From a stock market perspective, this means that Jesus is calling us to invest only in him and to invest everything that we have, everything that we are. But of course, that's when we often hesitate. Right? That's when we tend to short God. 
Because giving everything we are in our pride and our selfishness and our security blankets, that's not an easy thing to do. At first, anyway. And there are many reasons and excuses for why we don't, but at the root of any reason that we can come up with, whether it's doubt or convenience or lack of understandings or or science or greed or anger, apathy or envy, philosophy, all these excuses and reasons, at the root of all of them, what it often comes down to, again, is the question, is it worth it? If I climb to the top of this hill, will the view be worth it? If I spend $3,000 on this collectible lightsaber so I can hang on my wall, will it be worth it? Right? We're counting the cost and we're weighing it with the benefits. So with Jesus, we're thinking, right? With Jesus, we're thinking, if I give it all, if I give it all, will God actually come through? And if he does, what will he come through with? Is it worth it? Let's go a little deeper because I think that if we truly examine our hearts, I think what we're really asking when we say, is it worth it? What we're really asking is actually, what's in it for me? Right? What what good will it profit me? What am I going to get out of it? If I'm giving up all my stuff and my life, you know, this better be good. That's what these Israelites were saying when they decided that the cost outweighed the benefits. And so they bet against God. But here's where they erred and, and where we often err as well in this context. We don't realize or understand and can't comprehend the value of knowing God. While at the same time, we place way too much value on, and wait on the things that God is asking us to sacrifice. We're often so imbalanced in our perspective. Let's quickly look at what the passage says happens to those who bet against God. Malachi 4.4 4 says, For behold, the day is coming burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. The return investment for those who bet against God and put their trust in themselves and in their earthly pleasures and in their idols or in their works, their good works, is destruction. Not immediate destruction, as the Israelites have noted. They're prospering quite well in their current circumstance. But certain and total destruction on the day that the Lord comes in judgment. And I'm not trying to sound all dramatic or hellfire and brimstone. I'm just quoting God's word. Luke 9, 23 27. And Jesus said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. 
But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. So in light of God's word, we have to recognize then that our perspective, our lens is often, is often skewed, right? We, we look at gaining the world our earthly treasures, our selfish dreams and desires and, and our own good works. And we look at these things with such high regard. And we think we're, we're such awesome people and we have such awesome stuff. And we rely on those things. And then, and, then, and then we're shocked and appalled that God would actually ask us to give those things away and give those things up to follow him. But in reality, all that stuff that we've put so much value on, it's worthless. We can't take it, take it with us when we die. And it doesn't do anything for us when we die. So God's just asking us here, pleading with us to give up those things because they only lead us into destruction. Jesus is calling us to simply give up the things that are keeping us from knowing God and experiencing his glory. From this perspective, and to give up everything we are and to lay down our life is actually no sacrifice at all. It's actually an opportunity. It's an opportunity to be set free from the chains of death. And on that note, let's, let's talk about those who actually invest all they have in God. It says in chapter 4 that there are still those who fear God, even amongst all the Israelites who don't. There's still like a pocket of those who fear God. And, and that means that they honor him and obey God. And it says for them, they get this kind of return on their investment. It says God listens to them and God hears them. It says God remembers their faith for eternity. He calls them his own. And more than that, he calls them his treasured possession. God sets them apart for himself. And he gives them discernment to see the difference between the wicked and righteous he promises to spare them on the day of judgment. And he promises to spare them on that day of the Lord by making them righteous through the promised Messiah. And finally, he promises to restore them back into a place of joyful obedience in his law and statutes like their fathers before him, before them. So to go back to, go to, to, go back to my investment analogy, from this perspective then, God basically defies the markets, right? None of this low-risk, low-reward, or high-risk, potential high-reward stuff to follow God through Jesus Christ is hitting that impossible sweet spot. It's low-risk because you're giving away worthless junk that leads to death, and it's high-reward because you're gaining the kingdom of God. I don't know about you guys, but I think that's pretty incredible. And that's why the Apostle Paul, who once thought he had everything going for him, he had popularity, he had title, he had social status, he followed God's law to a T, so he thought he was perfectly righteous. But once he experienced the grace of God through Jesus Christ, he was able to say from Philippians 3, 7 to 8, he said, but whatever was an asset to me, I count as loss for the sake of Christ. All that stock that I had and whatever else, it's worthless 
Indeed, I count everything as loss because of, the, because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. See, he got it. He understood that to lay down our lives and sacrifice all we have and are is really just to give up the worthless things and, and, and our works that can't save us. Low-risk sacrifice. And, and in exchange, we get the grace of God. We get salvation. We get purpose. We get relationship with, with the Father. We get resurrection life. A high reward. The highest of rewards. So was it worth it for us to follow God? How could it not be? How could it not be? This is what Jesus is implying in Matthew 13, 44 to 46. When he says, The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who, on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. Once we see the value, even just a small portion of the value of God's kingdom, we'll be willing to sell everything we have to buy it. Because it's worth it. It's worth it. It's what we long for. It's joy. It's true life to know God and Jesus, his son. Unfortunately, though, on our own, we don't have enough to buy it. We don't have enough to buy that pearl of great price. And again, that's part of the problem. Even if we we were truly able to give up everything we are, it still wouldn't be enough to atone for or pay for the debt of our sin. And that's why God... In every single section of Malachi, in every rebuke that, that he brings up through, through the prophet Malachi, in every one of them, God reminds his people that despite their sin, since they're his treasure, treasured possession and his covenant people, he's willing to give all he has to purchase them back. I love that. And in every rebuke, he reminds them that he's going to pay the price for them. And he does. God sent Jesus, his one and only begotten son, to pay that price. And the cost was his own life. The cost was the cross. The cross that we deserved. Malachi 4, verse 2. Again, God says, But for you who fear my name, the son of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. And 1 Peter 2 24 shows us that Jesus is the fulfillment of this prophecy. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. Through Jesus, righteousness is risen in God's people. Through Jesus, we've been healed of our sinful nature, forgiven of our sin and guilt. Born again into a new hope, filled with his spirit, made acceptable and reconciled with God. Let me reiterate that. We, you, each of you, are God's treasured possession. So in order to purchase us, 
in order to purchase our freedom from sin and the judgment of death and to bring us before him in relationship, Jesus, God incarnate, came into the world to live and die and defeat death for us. Even when we weren't sure he was worth it, or even when, if we'd come to the conclusion that he wasn't worth it, Jesus' death on the cross proves to us that to him, we're worth it. We're worth dying for. We're his treasured possession that he gave up everything to buy. We certainly weren't worthy of it, but Jesus counted the cost, and because of his great love for us, he paid it. He paid for our salvation. He purchased that stock for us. He makes it possible for us even now to bet on God. We can follow God now because he made a way. And at this moment, I think whether, whether you've heard this a billion times before or if, or if this is your first time hearing about Jesus Christ's incredible and sacrificial love for us, we should be jumping for joy. We should be jumping for joy. Or at least our hearts, our hearts should be leaping for joy. Just as it says in, in chapter 4, verse 2, you shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. That's what we should look like. And I don't know if any of you have ever seen calves leaping from a stall, but I'm going to show you a video of what that looks like. When cows get released into an open field and they've been in, in, held in an enclosed space all winter, trapped, right, in this enclosed space, and they've finally been let out uh, to, to run free. And so I'm going to show you that video of what that looks like. As a parent, I'm always worried about those kids that are standing there and, like, the cows are, like, bucking. I'm like, why are the kids standing there? Anyways, I love how they, how they, they, come, out, they come out of the, the barn and they're like, what's this? What's this? And then they're like, oh, yeah. And then they just start going for it, right? And I think that's, that's when we discover the grace of Jesus. We're like, we're like what's this? We're like, oh, man, I'm, I'm set free, right? And we should just be jumping for joy like calves from the stall because of Jesus, because he paid the price for our sin, because he defeated the power of sin and death over us in his resurrection. Because of his great love for us, we've been set free from the curse of death and adopted as heirs into the kingdom of God. No longer to be held in bondage by the things of this world, the things that hold us captive, the things that, that keep us from knowing God and knowing true eternal joy. Now instead we can go out joyfully leaping like calves from the stall. So yes, Jesus is worth more and gives us more than anything that this world has to offer. Without a doubt, he's worth it. He's worth our lives. Because in losing our lives for him, we gain resurrection life in him. 1 Corinthians 6.20 For you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. He invested everything he has, everything he was in us. Let's in turn respond to his grace by joyfully and thankfully investing all we are in him. So once again, whether this is your first time hearing it or whether you've heard it many times, it doesn't matter. Right now is your opportunity to come to the foot of the cross and receive his grace. Receive his grace. To repent for the times you've bet against God and through Christ receive his forgiveness because he's quick to forgive. 
There's no longer any condemnation in Christ Jesus. You don't have to feel guilty for betting against God. You can come before him, receive forgiveness, no matter what you've done. And as you receive his grace, joyfully surrender in faith all that you are completely and fully to following Jesus. And you'll find you'll never be wanting. You'll find that he's all that you've desired, all that you need. Seek him. Seek him and him alone this morning. And surrender to him. Because like I've said, and I can't stop saying, he's more than worth it. He's everything. He's all we need. Before we move into communion, I'm going to read this quote by Dietrich Bonhoeffer because I think it perfectly sums up what we've been talking about this morning. Just read this quote and just meditate on these words. He says, Such grace is costly because it calls us to follow. And it is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. It is costly because it costs a man his life. And it is grace because it gives a man the only true life. It is costly because it condemns sin. And grace because it justifies the sinner. Above all, it is costly because it costs God the life of his son. Ye were bought at a price. And what has cost God much cannot be cheap for us. Above all, it is grace because God did not reckon his son too dear a price to pay for our life, but delivered him up for us. Costly grace is the incarnation of God. The fact that Jesus Christ died is more important than the fact that I will die. And the fact that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead is the sole ground of my hope that I too will be raised on the day of judgment. I don't know if you noticed, but the Malachi passage ended with the word destruction. In some translation, it ends with the word curse. So the Old Testament ends with the word curse. Because in our sin, as the law has shown us, we are under the curse of sin and death. But then you look at the end of the New Testament, what word does it end with? It ends with blessing. It ends with blessing. Because through Christ's death, we've been taken from curse of sin into the blessing and riches of Christ. That's why in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six 26, it says, For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes, because it's in his death that we've been given life. And because of his life, we can give up ours and receive resurrection life. So this morning, as you take communion, as you take the, the, the bread, which represents his body, which is broken for us, and, and the juice, which is his blood that was poured out for us for the forgiveness of our sins, surrender to him. As you remember that he emptied his life for you, surrender to him and empty your life for him. Receive his grace and allow him to fill you with his life his joy with his hope and so when you're ready you can come and take communion on your own this morning because this is, a, this is a personal commitment that you guys are making a personal surrender that you guys are making to Christ this morning so when you're ready come and take the elements but I would encourage you to spend some time in prayer in repentance and surrender to him before you do
we have, we have, we have lots of time. You don't need to rush it. The band's just going to play, and, and you guys can meditate and reflect. And I'm going to pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much that even though we're unworthy of your love, you love us unconditionally, Lord. And you love us with such great love that you are willing to give your Son, your one and only begotten Son, Jesus Christ, to take our place, to pay the price for the debt of our sin so that we can have resurrection life, so that we can be forgiven of our sins, so that we can know you and be filled with your Spirit, so that we can be alive and born again. Lord, I pray that you would help each one of us to surrender our lives. That if we're holding on to things, we're having, we're having, we're struggling with giving up what we have, Lord God. I pray that you would help us to surrender those things, so that we can come to know you, so that we can be filled with all you have to give and all you have to offer, Lord. And as we take communion, Lord God, as we remember Jesus, your sacrifice, that you emptied yourself completely. Lord, I pray that you would enable us to empty ourselves, to live for you. To know that joy and that hope that comes with being in Christ. Lord, we can't thank you enough for your love, for your grace and your mercy, Lord. We give you all the glory because you are the only one worthy of it. In Jesus' name, amen.